The gospel lesson comes from the good news according to St. Matthew, the 17th chapter. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the gospel of our Lord. There's a lot of reasons that um, I'm kind of a ridiculous person, and one of them is this. Every time I go anywhere that's remotely beautiful or new or exciting, any place, it doesn't matter. I can't help myself. If I'm intrigued by it, a couple days in, I start looking at properties. I just start, I get online, and I'm like, oh, I could live here. This would be nice, yeah. Like, I love the ocean. I want to be on the ocean. This is perfect. And then maybe I go somewhere, I'm like, you know, the, the desert's pretty cool. I could do the desert. I could live in the desert or... You know, never mind, I go places, I don't know Spanish, I don't know any of the culture, and I'm like, yeah, I could start over here, this would be great. And so I start looking up listings, and it's even more ridiculous because I have virtually no money to my name. So there's no chance I'm ever buying property in these places. But I like just imagine you're there and you're like, man, this is great, what if I could do this every day? What if I could go out in this river or swim in this place or do this thing, and it's really exciting. And part of that's because you go somewhere, and if it's beautiful, if it's glorious, you get all excited and you want to be a part of it. Maybe you saw this article in the last couple of weeks in the New York Times. It was called How a Bit of Awe Can Improve Your Health. Uh, and I'm going to quote a, a few things from the article. The article uh, says this, awe can mean many things. It could be witnessing a total solar eclipse or seeing your child take her first steps or hearing Lizzo perform live. But while many of us know it when we feel it, awe is not easy to define. Well, they found a scientist, Dasher Keltner, a psychologist at the University of UC Berkeley. He did try to define it. He says this, awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. He also says, while many of us associate awe with dramatic life-changing events, the truth is that awe can also be a part of everyday life, coming from what he calls a perceived vastness, or anything that challenges to rethink our previously held ideas. It can be triggered, of course, like seeing moments like seeing the Grand Canyon, but also moments when you witness, for example, an act of generosity or kindness. And they go on for the rest of the article, as you might imagine, to talk about how awe is actually critical to well-being. It's in the article, it says, it's just as important as joy and contentment and love. 
to have these experiences of awe. And they do all the fun science in here about it actually calms down your nervous system, triggering the release of uh, all these chemicals that I can't even pronounce. I'm not going to try. Uh, and it's, it, then he makes this point that it's also the absence of self-preoccupation. So this is the quote. We're at this cultural moment of narcissism and self-shame and criticism and entitlement, and awe gets us out of that. It does this by helping us get out of our own heads and realize our place in the larger context and in our communities. People who find all, all around them are more open to new ideas, to what is unknown, and to what language can't describe. Awe is kind of what I was trying to describe. You go somewhere and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. This is glorious. And I am inspired into awe by this place. And you find that you like this feeling so much that you never want it to end. Hence, you look at properties that you can't ever afford. And I think this motivates all of us. It's why beauty and affirmation and love move us so much. It can ache sometimes. We long to live there, to stay in this place. It's kind of an at-home in your own skin, at-home in the world feeling. You're, you're not even really thinking so much as you're just delighting in the world around you. You get lost in it totally comfortable sharing it with others and it feels like everything fits like the world has meaning we have meaning our eyes are off of ourselves, and we're struck silent and we're enraptured even worshipful looking at something glorious it can remind you that you are more than just a natural organism there is something that seems that separates us from the animals this capacity and desire for glory and to be in a state of awe whether that be the most perfect team executing the most perfect play at a certain moment in sports or a really powerful actor doing an amazing scene it could be a job well done a craft well made it could be falling in love and this is the things that we pursue that we want to partake in to be awed by to be a part of and it can be a bit of a curse because once you've tasted it, you don't want it to end, right? Flannery O'Connor, a great Southern writer, said this in one of her prayer journals. Dear God, I want to get near you. Yet it seems almost a sin to suggest such a thing even. Perhaps communion itself doesn't give the nearness I mean. The nearness I mean comes after death, perhaps. It's what we are struggling for, and if I found it, either I would be dead or, or I would have seen it for a second, and life would then be intolerable. What she knows is all this glory that we're describing is a gift from God. That these gifts aren't meant to compete with God, but also enjoying them doesn't detract from Him. But these are simply manifestations of His own glory. The hems of his robe, reflections of his light that he holds within himself, pure moments of his eternal purity. And so the first thing I want you to hear this morning is Jesus is the source of the glory that we crave in this world. The passage began after six days. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white 
as light, transfigured. In the Greek, it is the word metamorpho. You can hear the English word from that. Changing form in keeping with an inner reality is the definition. It is to say that there was something within him, about him and his being and who he was, his identity, but also his essence, that is there and suddenly it was revealed. A changing form in keeping with the inner reality. Metamorpho, transfigured. So he is revealed, he is unveiled in his purity, in his beauty, in his status as the son of God, in this place that makes everyone suddenly feel safe and they want to put up tents and just be there forever. There are people that are living and people that we thought were dead that are still living somehow, talking to Jesus. There's a glory cloud surrounding them. This image, this experience for Peter, James, and John This is the original and ultimate glory that we all long for. And it's as if our general experiences of glory in the world are, in fact, actually just emanations or moments. Hear that. The thing that you find awesome is Jesus himself speaking words of deep and colorful love to you. It's him wooing you like a lover. He is inviting us to the source of that glory, to follow the stream up to the spring of water itself, not to settle for little sips of glory that won't satisfy, but instead to increase our appetite to go up the stream and get to the source. And this is the problem for us, why we are restless and often bored to death or uh, stressed and anxious. Instead of entering into real relationship with him through these things, And experiencing the glory of God himself in and through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And experiencing all the glory that emanates into this theater that he has created. And enjoying them with him, but enjoying him through them even. As the source. As the fulfillment of these things. Instead, we turn to the things themselves. We try to hold on to them. And squeeze all the juice out of our favorite new thing. The new thing that is bringing us awe at the moment, whether it be a place or a person or a thing. Like kids who record maybe our favorite speech from God on an old cassette tape, and when we leave his house, we play it over and over and over until the tape runs out, and we're trying to wind the tape back in with our little finger. It won't last. We wear it out. We can change our appetite to a new glory. We'll wear those out too. See, we will never actually be satisfied until we follow the clues and get to Jesus and God himself as the source of our longing for awe and as the source of the glory that we crave. And so they're experiencing the source, and of course, they don't want to leave. Peter's just talking like he does. He's talking, talking. It's so good to be here, Jesus. Man, it's good. I'll make some tents. We'll stay. We'll barbecue. It'll be awesome. Let's get together. He was still talking, it says. He just wouldn't stop talking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God says, stop looking, stop planning, stop talking. Listen to him. Whatever he says, the beloved, listen to him. And this is my second point. We do partake in Jesus' glory. And we will more fully partake 
in his glory if we are going to him as the source of all the glory that we crave and experience in the world. Because Jesus not only reveals who God is, he reveals who we are. He's fully God as he's revealing through the transfiguration, but he's also fully one of us, a total human nature. In fact, he is the one true, truly full human being because he lived life to the full. He never settled for less than what we were designed to be. He knows who we are and he shows us who we are and who we were meant to be. This mix of earth and spirit, this mix of ordinariness and glory, it's seen right there in the transfiguration. It shows that we are complex. It's hard to even know who we are, who I am. One of our own famous Brooklynites, Walt Whitman, said, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. He's right. If I ask you to write down right now the three things that are most important to you in your life, and if we could look back at your life over the last week, there will have been times when your life and your thoughts, words, and deeds worked against the very things that you say you most want. Why? I don't know. We're a mystery to ourselves. We do what we don't want to do. We're blissfully happy one moment and racked with despair the next. We need someone to come and show us who we are, someone who knows us deeper than we know ourselves. And a beautiful part of the Bible is it says that we were made in glory, from God's glory, to share in his glory. That he's not greedy. He loves to share his glory. There's enough to go around. There's enough of him to go around. And even though we've fallen out of our full glory and we've dirtied and shamed ourselves and worn out the world and blinded our vision to God's glory, we're still made with that capacity. In fact, the Bible says when Christ restores us to God's presence, we begin a journey, a process, a transformation by the Holy Spirit in which we are conformed to the image of Christ. The New Testament says we now move by faith from one glory to the next glory. It's just, that's the road. That's what's ahead for you. Glory to glory to glory. Not just around you, but you. Your glory is being revealed. You are becoming more spacious. You are getting to know yourself more deeply and then living out of that truth by the power of his spirit. Glory to glory. We shall be like this glorious transfigured Christ one day. C.S. Lewis Put it this way in the weight of glory. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most interesting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Beautiful words. This is who we are. And this is who we shall be by grace through faith and the powerful love of God. This glory is also just to realize that Jesus is the beloved and in him and in through our baptism, as we hear the word of God over our baptism, that we are the beloved, as you heard earlier, you are the children of God now. We suddenly are inside the glory cloud, inside the only circle that matters, but to which all are invited. 
that you belong body, soul, and mind to God himself, that you will see him face to face, that he delights in you. He talks in you. The way he talks to Jesus is that he's going to talk to you as his son and daughter, that you will behold the beatific vision that is more beautiful than the wildest wilderness. You'll see in the eternal eyes of your father and maker the same awe looking back at you, saying, do you think I love the flowers of the field and the falcon on the wind and the vastness of the sea and the crashing of the infinite ocean or the mysterious creatures of the deep? Well, I do, but none of them inspire as much awe or are as loved by me as are you. You don't believe it's true? Or read Genesis. Oh, this is so good. This is amazing. I thought of this wild creature. I made this amazing fruit. It's good. It's good. It's good. Oh, look at these humans I made. That's very good. John writes in his first letter, Dear friends, right now we're children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. If you have this hope, you purify yourself even now just as he is pure. You get transfigured. You become like him if this is your hope. And the last point is that this glory is mostly hidden now. I never want to leave the places I go and experience glory. I look at real estate that I'll never afford apart from a lottery ticket. I don't want to leave that island view or those desert mountains. Glory is so good. It's so restful, it's so renewing, it feels so alive, and it's the state you were made for. We only get glimpses of it in this life. Mountaintop highs, if you will. Peter didn't want to leave either. He wants to set up camp. But this side of the veil that separates us from the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ has returned and made himself fully known, the knowledge of the Lord covers the whole earth, we can never live forever on a mountaintop. Then or now. Either in God's personal glory or in his creative subglories that we experience. We must first, and that happens in this passage, go back down with Jesus because he's got more work to do. There is more brokenness and hurt and sadness and thorns and frustration to heal and then to make new and to cultivate and to tease out its inherent glory. There is more to do. He has to go down and roll up his sleeves and suffer and serve. And he wants us to go with him. Before we are ready to be fully satisfied with the eternal, the eternal glory we were made for. See, Matthew 16, just before this passage, Jesus told them plainly, they're like, who do you think I am? What's my deepest identity? And Peter says, the Christ. And he says, okay, you're right. But now that you know it, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm telling you plainly. We're not talking metaphors. I'm going there. They're going to put me on a cross. I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'll rise again. And they're like, what? And then here, at the end of the passage, he says to them in verse 9, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. They have to go back down with him and keep the secret within themselves to learn that his glory is what drives him. His love is what drives him. The glory of a kindness and a generous act. His love going down to suffer and die with us and on our behalf. 
None of these disciples go to the cross, but he does. They go to witness. See, there is no lasting glory for us apart from our own suffering and serving. There is no lasting glory apart from patience and waiting for God to give it at the right time. There's no resurrection apart from crucifixion. You will not have that glory that lasts forever apart from Christ himself. You won't satiate your desire for glory until God gives it to you in fullness and to everyone at last. You'll not rest until you've gone with Jesus while he suffers and serves this world. And that's because you won't see him until you become like him. That's where I want to leave you, that everyone, Christians included, want glory now. We want it all now. We want it to never go away. But we can't have it yet until we become like Christ, those who suffer and serve and know that this is our glory. That we can't yet have a vacation by the seashore or in a mountain chalet for more than a Sabbath or a week or a season because he wants the whole creation to experience this glory. And for that to happen, there's still work to do. So he takes us down the mountain where there is service and suffering waiting for us. And down there even, especially, is where we find Jesus. That's where God's glory is hidden, even in us. You've heard this passage, likely, but the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, but we have this treasure hidden in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He's the source of the glory and the power and the goodness and the love and the energy to serve and to sacrifice and to suffer. And so don't lose heart, the apostle says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Nothing compares to it. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so it is through suffering and service and through jars of clay and through this hope of the unseen at times where God's voice and glimpses of his purity and moments of his holiness and tastes of his love will be revealed to us and to our neighbors. And so are we known as people who suffer and serve, as people who like to take their time at the mountaintop with Jesus, but also are willing to enter the valley of others' brokenness? We will be able to do this if we listen to and hear the words from God's beloved who has all glory. The one who says, now take up your cross and follow me. This Lent, as we embark on a new season together, let us consider how we might follow Jesus to suffer and serve and that in this we will be hiding glory away to be in awe. To be in awe not only of the glorious things that overwhelm you and are obvious, but to be in awe of human beings in a subway at rush hour. Because human beings are the most glorious things God has ever made. So let's help one another be revealed by God as the glorious creatures that we are. I close in prayer. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.
Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.